Imagine not knowing what your income would be each week. Financial planning would be a nightmare. More than 90% of Vision's income is free will donations. When supporters commit to monthly giving, it provides greater certainty when budgeting for regular expenses and weighing up new opportunities that arise. And knowing we can rely on regular monthly gifts takes some guesswork out of operating a faith ministry. Monthly givers who share our mission are called Visionary Extra Mile Partners. And right now, you are invited to join this growing group of faithful supporters. The amount of your tax-deductible monthly gift is completely up to you. But what is most important is knowing that you are standing with us to reach Australia with the gospel. To become a Visionary Extra Mile partner, click the banner in the Vision app or go to vision.org.au slash extra mile. It only takes a few minutes, but will have an eternal impact. Vision. Audio on demand from Vision Christian Media. The story. It was only a week before my son's Stephen, before his wedding. All the family had gathered, first time in four years that everyone was in Sydney. I knew by that time my wife was uh, suicidal. Because I had the lifeline training, I asked the questions of her very directly so that I knew what a plan was. I tried to stay with her, but she escaped from me. G'day, I'm Jimmy Colfax. Welcome to The Story. Well, today we have one that starts off rather sadly with the suicide of Noel Braun's wife, but eventually we learn how his faith and going on a long spiritual pilgrimage has helped him to heal. Noel's from Sydney and is the author of the book, The Day Was Made for Walking. Today he has a chat with Karen Hunt and reflects on some of the highs and lows in his life and what he has learned from his experiences. Noel is a former school teacher, come psychologist, human resource consultant, traveling man, a hiker, life engager, the ripe age of 81. Welcome to the program. Thank you for having me. Are you yeah. overlooking the ocean right now, taking in the view? Yes. Beautiful. I see the trees first outside my windows here. <laughs> a lovely view. Well, you've seen many trees, you've seen many countries, you've seen many changes in life throughout your years from education to psychology and getting into student welfare to human relations in the corporate world. That's, That's right. quite a journey yeah. in itself. Yeah, back there I met my wife, yeah. Maris, while I was still in the education apartment and she came from a town called Katamatite in the Goulburn Valley in Victoria. She did a general nursing training near Shepparton and she came down to Melbourne to do a midwifery and I met her the first night that she decided to have a night out with the other girls. What do you remember that first time you saw her? Oh well actually it's quite a story because yeah. it was the Heidelberg Town Hall yeah. and I saw this tall dark haired very attractive girl and the boys were asking her for a dance and she was knocking everybody back so I thought I'll give her a go. I went and asked her, could I have a dance? And she said, yes. She'd be delighted. (laughs) Her version of the story, incidentally, is that she'd gone out with a boy for a milkshake at the interval. And as they're coming back, the boy said he'd just go and shift his car. By the time I got around, she had decided she'd been stood up. So I came by at the right time. Yeah, sounds like something better came along. Yeah. So I think I danced every dance that night with her. And I think about three years later, we were married. Special memories. Yeah. We had four wedding dates, actually, because she kept collapsing her lung. 
but we finally got uh, married once again in Shepparton. We set up house in Melbourne. Then the company that I was with sent me across to Perth, and then from Perth we came to uh, Sydney. My wife said she'd give Sydney three years, but we started going to this church at Terry Hills. That wonderful sense of community kept us here in uh, Sydney. How old were your kids when you arrived in Sydney? Angela would have been uh, about 14, I suppose, 14 or 15. Jacinta was about 10. Stephen would have been 9. And Tim, he would have been about 3. Yeah. So two boys, two girls. That's right, yeah. So Terry Hills and this church was special for you as a family? Very much so, and the church still is. It's got a wonderful um, community spirit there. Finally, I set up my own practice operating from home. Mm-hmm. So this was a practice in psychology? It was a practice in psychology. Yeah. Concentrating more on, um, you know, the industrial settings for a start, but okay. it moved more over towards the clinical side. A very significant aspect of my journey is that a couple of my um, clients died by suicide and also two of my wife's sisters died by suicide. Mm. In about the year 2000, I joined Lifeline. As a telephone counsellor? I joined as a telephone counsellor. I had my background in psychology, which Mm -hmm. was helpful, but I went through their training. Mm -hmm. I wanted to have the suicide prevention orientation. Mm. I'm still involved with Lifeline, even today. I think at the back of my mind, although I've refused to admit it at that time, I saw my wife, Maris, at risk because the two sisters had already died. She suffered from depression for many, many years. It got worse as the years went by until finally, I think it was in 2004, she too died by suicide. Did she? Oh, no. Now, that's very much a defining turning point in my whole life. I'm sure. Because all the assumptions that I'd made about life all the expectations and all the questions that one thought I'd answered years before, it was all unraveled. Yeah. So I went through this grieving period. I think I decided at that time, okay, I wasn't going to be the strong, silent type, say nothing. I was going to tell anybody I could what an insidious disease depression is and how it could take you know, an otherwise very calm, rational, beautiful person and turn them into a, you know, a fearful person. Mm-hmm. Now, can you give us a little bit of an understanding of what it was like the day you discovered that your wife had chosen to die by suicide? Well, it was catastrophic to say the least because it was only a week before my son's Stephen, before his wedding. All the family had gathered, first time in four years that everyone was in Sydney. Yeah. I'd come a week before to start the celebrations and... uh, she chose to die on a Saturday and that was the day that my uh, son's friends were coming for like a bucks day. Mm-hmm. They were going to go paintballing. Yeah. I knew by that time my wife was uh, suicidal. Because I had the lifeline training, I asked the questions of her very directly so that I knew what her plan was. I tried to stay with her, but she escaped from me. First time ever that I can remember ever she told a lie about where she was going. Mm. I went through this massive guilt. Why didn't I do enough to um, stop her? Uh, We had the funeral on the following Thursday and we had the wedding 
on the Saturday. You went ahead with the wedding. Yes, so we went ahead. Well, uh, I wanted Stephen and his wife to go ahead with the wedding. Well, I remember about the night of the funeral, we sort of like all got together as a family conference and we discussed how were we going to handle this wedding because we knew that my daughter-in-law's family, they were coming down from the country, they would have already heard about it, they probably mightn't know how we'd be treated and how we would go and we decided, okay, we would have the wedding and leave the grieving and the tears till after. So we managed to get through that wedding. It was a very nice wedding. Then the grieving really started after that. Can I ask, though, how did you as a family handle the news of the death? Was it a surprise or not really? I think it was more a surprise to the kids, although they knew something was up. Uh, They certainly knew that she was not travelling so well. But it's always a surprise, it's always a shock, even though you know fully what's going on, it's always a shock when it actually happens. I always had in mind that Maris always said she wouldn't follow her sisters, but sadly she did. Did she die in the same way that they did? No, no, they were all different. Catherine died by drowning, Uh, Loretta died by an overdose, and Maris died by jumping. That happened in Chatswood, in a car park in Chatswood. I still cannot go to Chatswood, even though it's nearly 10 years ago. I do my best to avoid Chatswood. I'm not surprised. My time in Sydney, Noel, was on the North Shore, and my Christian experience there was based at North Shore Christian Centre there at Chatswood. So I know exactly you know the shopping centre. You know where Chatswood centre. is? Yes, okay. I know exactly the shopping centre you're referring yeah. to. Yeah. So usually when I'm going towards the city or something, you would not, you probably would go through Chatswood. I make sure I go around it, you know, even today. Yeah. Uh, it's just one of those things that I haven't got my head around yet. Mm. Got my head around most other things now. So the wedding took place? The wedding took place. Three little ones have arrived since. Congratulations, Grandad. There was already four, so they've made seven. And it always saddens me whenever I see those three they never knew their grandmother. Yeah. I don't see them that often because they live in Rockhampton. But when I do see them, that, that's always a thought that I have. Can I ask about the sister-in-laws? Uh, yeah, they had their mental health problems too, the two sisters. They were more bipolar, I'd say, mm-hmm. rather than uh, depression. Although in retrospect, I wonder sometimes now whether my wife could have been bipolar too. Was that something hereditary within their family or it, family Well, it could have been because... Um, one of their aunts had died by suicide and in the um, generation before there had been an uncle. I don't think they say suicide's hereditary but probably the mental health yes. aspect is. Yes, it's all on the genes now as they talk about it but doesn't necessarily always follow. You're listening to The Story. Today Karen Hunt is chatting with author Noel Braun. We've just heard about the tragic suicide of his wife, Maris, that he has written about in his book, No Way to Behave at a Funeral. Next, we'll find out about a spiritual pilgrimage he went on through France and Spain and how it helped him to heal. That and more when we return. If this program has highlighted something you'd like prayer for, we'd love to pray for you. Call 1-800-PRAY-FOR-ME. That's 1-800-772-936. It's a free call. Or text 0401 132 888. 
You're listening to The Story. Today, Karen Hunt is chatting with author Noel Braun. Before the break, we heard about the tragic suicide of his wife, Maris. Next, we'll hear about Noel's long-distance walk through France and Spain and how it helped him to heal both emotionally and spiritually. He has written two books about these experiences. And then I decided actually I was going to write uh, about my grieving journey following Morris's death. I thought that was unique because generally Australian blokes don't just seem to write books about their grief journey. I had a look at some of the uh, books on grieving and there were some areas that weren't covered. So I decided, okay, I thought they're part of the journey, so I covered them. So I think that book, No Way to Behave at a Funeral, I've had some tremendous response and feedback from that one. The title in itself sounds very interesting. Yeah, you know, from, from mm-hmm. people who perhaps who, who are on a grieving journey in themselves who yeah. were not able to sort of like articulate their feelings. In reading my book, they came back with a feedback to me that I was describing exactly the way they felt but couldn't find the words. Sure. Were you able to draw on the strength of your Terry Hills Christian community? Yeah, they were wonderfully supportive. Yeah. They really ran because it was a complete shock to everyone there. My wife kept her depression well and truly hidden. And, you know, it was just a complete surprise and shock to them. They've been very supportive to me. And also, I think well, the Christian beliefs helped there too. I never blamed God for my wife's death. In my thinking, God had nothing to do with it. It was this depression that she suffered that led her down the way that she went. My faith would have been strengthened. What it really reinforced in my mind was that you don't have control of anything, really. You might plan and try and get things managed and under control, but really, it's not in your hands. If you want to try and control something, it's a bit of a futile exercise, but that's made me more conscious of the higher power that's there. Tell me, Noel, you decided to leave the support of your family and your friends and you embarked on this remarkable quest of your own spirituality and self-discovery. Where did that take you? I'd been travelling quite a bit since my wife's death and I'd heard about the Camino when I was in France. For those that don't know the Camino, what is that? The Camino is an ancient pilgrimage route. The idea of pilgrimage was very strong in medieval days and usually the pilgrimage was to some sort of special sacred place. The three major places that people went to in those days was to Rome, Jerusalem and then Santiago. Santiago on the north of Spain. Santiago was Spanish for St James, the Apostle. Santiago became a major pilgrimage destination. There are several routes across Europe through France and through Spain. They all lead towards the Santiago in the Galatia in the northwest of Spain. Now, the practice died out, but it's been revived in modern times. I walked three times along different sort of routes. I suppose it'd be a total by now. It must be nearly 2,500 kilometres that I've walked. Wow, fit man. What appealed to me, I think, was the idea of that's what life's all about. We're pilgrims on a journey, and I wanted to do something to honour the memory of my wife, Maris, and to um, have time in reflection and silence and solitude trying to work out on some of these questions as to who I was and so I was in a way searching for um, meaning and it was also in other ways a spiritual journey and that I was sort of um, testing myself, challenging myself to step right out of the comfort zone 
and to moving away into the unknown there. An unknown in the present, but definitely receiving a very clear glimpse into the past, into history by the sound yeah, of it. Yeah, very much so. Yeah, I felt a real bond as I was walking in the same path as many of the, well, as they'd been walking a thousand years ago. Mm-hmm. Very much like a communion there as I was walking along. I used to look at the footprints in front of me. You know, people had just been there in the last day or two. I felt mm-hmm. a real union with them too. I found one of the great things about that was the people that I met. I met some great people along the way. For the most part, you might be walking on your own during the day, but every evening you got together with other walkers and other pilgrims. And it was great to talk to them. I spoke a variety of languages, but that didn't seem to matter too much. You uh, seemed to communicate okay. I had some very enjoyable nights, and one of the conversations always was, why were they walking? And everyone would have had their very own individual very story much their to own. tell. Some people were able to articulate it pretty clearly while they were doing it. Others couldn't really quite verbalise it. They just wanted to do it. They felt drawn, compelled it. And there was a great camaraderie uh, and a sharing of burdens and and a desire to help each other. Mm. How long were you on your initial pilgrimage? Yeah, well, the first year I was there, 45 days. Mm -hmm. That was through France. I walked to the foot of the Pyrenees that time. And the second year I came along and to where I left off, continued over the Pyrenees and walked through Spain then to uh, Santiago. That was about another 750 or so kilometres. Mm-hmm. And all along the way, uh, one of the fortunate things is that I can speak a bit of French. I was able to um, talk to many of the others. Their backgrounds and reasons were very varied. We had people, uh, for example, who um, had been bored witless by their jobs, for example. Yep. They had chucked their job in and decided to walk the Camino, working at what they do. I spent some time with one young lad who was Norwegian. He'd worked in a bank there in Norway. He chucked in his job and he had decided when he went back that he trained to be a nurse. There were people who'd literally walked straight out of their marriages. There were people who had been bereaved. And there were many, of course, who perhaps were just sort of, it was for them a walking holiday. Very interesting, quite a number of people in this category of those who had given up the practice of their religion but were still seeking something. Mm. The Irish, I found, and also quite a few Germans, have a particular problem. Many Irishmen have been completely disillusioned with scandals that have been in their church there. They don't go to church anymore, but they were still searching. It's interesting, too, because the Catholic Church in um, France recognises that a lot of people, particularly the young people, aren't going to church anymore. Mm-hmm. So they encourage them to do something like the pilgrimage. So your travels sound like they were certainly interwoven with so many accounts of many engaging characters. What did you yourself find on your walk? I did a lot of thinking about the nature of God and I sort of felt a sense of dissatisfaction with, okay, the package, as it were, that God has been presented, you know, like a neat, tidy package. As I was particularly walking through some of that French countryside, and then you might have experienced a bit of the extremes of weather and that sort of thing, uh, I thought, um, you can't really package God. But there were some moments along the way where I really felt a presence, sometimes very simply, sometimes just as I was walking. When I was in Spain, we were walking west all the time, and we used to start before dawn. I'd start before dawn and then gradually the sun would come up behind you and then you'd see your shadow stretching 
that looked like hundreds of metres ahead and then gradually shortened. It was just only my shadow. But so often I felt there was a presence with me, walking with me, half expected to see another shadow mm. uh, appear. An aspect of the countryside that had a particular resilience with me was the sunflowers. They're a brilliant plant, really. You'll see the whole countryside covered in sunflowers right to the horizon. And they're such symbols of life the thousand seeds in the middle and the flower has got to die before that new life emerges. I was always full of joy as it were whenever I saw all these sunflowers and had to stop and admire them. Well it's good to hear yeah. that uh, the concept of life it is, is very prominent in your mind then. Yeah, There are other, other occasions where um, I sort of felt the presence fleeting. God's a slippery character. <laughs> you don't sort of get a handle on God too easily. When you do, it slips away. Does God slip away or do we slip away? Our, our idea of him slips away, yeah. I think. Our understanding. Once again, we're trying to control the world a bit and we should let go, shouldn't we? Yeah. I had a very um, interesting um, week at the end of my walk there. I said I walked through France and then through Spain and I got to Santiago and I continued on to Finisterre, which is right on the Atlantic Ocean. It finished here means the end of the earth. It was the end of the earth in those medieval days. Mm-hmm. But then I went and had a week in Chartres, just oh, about an hour by train from Paris. In the cathedral there, there's this labyrinth. And the labyrinth is a form of devotion back from medieval days. And I did a retreat with two pastors from Minneapolis, actually, two Baptist ministers, husband and wife. So I felt, okay, after having walked the Camino, I need a little bit of time to get away somewhere and sort of, you know, sort out what had happened rather than come straight back to the hurly-burly of, of life. And I found that a very valuable experience, and I described that in my book. So I felt, in a way, that sort of completed the pilgrimage, but sort of at the end of that, I realised, well, the pilgrimage never ends. I was back to the idea of our life journey being a pilgrimage. We just keep on going and going and going. So physically we might arrive at a destination, but the life journey continues. If anything, questions that I started the pilgrimage with, I think what happened is it raised more questions. <laughs> the more we learn, the more we realise, the less <laughs> yeah, we know. It raised more questions. So I think I more or less decided, OK, well, there are questions I'm never going to get the answers for. But that doesn't stop me from trying to... <laughs> You mentioned two American Baptist pastors. Did they reveal any new kind of insights that you hadn't experienced before? They did. They had this orientation. It was interesting. Uh, these pastors, they saw prayer in different ways. They saw reading the scriptures as prayer. Uh, they saw being of service to others as prayer. And then they saw the idea of the emotions and the feelings. You have some great experience. You can get a real lift out of it shot in the arm I call it they're all different songs of prayer and then in discussions with them they had decided that the major part of my emphasis was on service to others because you know the idea of loving my neighbour is very strong in my thinking I recognise the presence thing I felt that very strongly from the Camino walk the idea of presence tell us what brought you back home when did you come back to Australia and did you come back with a hopeful heart yeah, I came back uh, with a hopeful heart, all right, because I continued my involvement with Lifeline. And I've been facilitating groups for people who have been bereaved by mm-hmm. suicide. I can walk with them because I know something of the journey that they are walking through. 
And I think my whole story is one of hope in that it's possible for a major catastrophe in one's life to destroy one, send one down spiralling. I suppose it does anyway. But um, you manage somehow or other to pick yourself up, even to recognise that the catastrophe or the tragedy itself in a way opens new fields that you would not perhaps have ventured down had the tragedy or catastrophe not occurred. I, I think that's very much so. That continues to be my motivation for um, my involvement in Lifeline. I'm reaching out to people who sort of are in crisis and need some help and I have a feeling, OK, because I've been in crises myself, I appreciate some of what they are going through. So I think that's very much a message of hope. Mm. In Hebrews chapter 11... It says, now faith is confidence. It's confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. Do you have a new sense of assurance in your own purpose in life, in your future beyond once you pass away? Yes. In a way, I have a, um, have a reasonably clear idea of what I want to do and I am not too fussed about what other people might think. I like to use the image of the hand of God once again with some of my work with Lifeline in that I'm like the hand of God I'm the agent perhaps God's hand is reaching out but I'm the agent I'm reaching out to people who need help only there for a short period of time but that little short period of time is enough to see them through a dark spot and and allows them perhaps to go on themselves with a, a little bit of hope That was Karen Hunt chatting with Noel Braun author of the book The Day Was Made for Walking It was interesting to hear how his long-distance pilgrimage was instrumental in helping him heal from his wife's suicide and what he learned about life and God along the journey. For more about his books, Noel's website is noelbraun.com.au. That's noelbraun, B-R-A-U-N.com.au. Also, it was great to hear how Noel is helping others by volunteering at Lifeline Suicide Prevention Call Centre. And if anything discussed today has raised concerns for you or someone you know, you can contact Lifeline 24 hours a day on 13 11 14. That's 13 11 14. Well, thanks for joining us. I'm Jimmy Colfax, encouraging you to share your story with someone today. Next time on The Story. So I get this knock on my door from one of our medical staff and he says, oh, he knocks on my door and he says, Madame, we've got a problem. And I'm like, oh, yeah. And then he says, the boys want to run away. So I'm thinking, okay, God, I'm up here in the middle of northern Uganda. I'm in a culture that's not my own culture and the boys want to run away. So what on earth can I do? Marita Simpson has always had a heart for missions, teaching and travel. So it's not surprising that she's gone on to begin her own school in a remote area of Uganda, helping orphaned and vulnerable children. We'll find out the challenges she faces as a single lady leading a ministry in that society next time. The Story. story. Just another way vision is connecting faith to life. This program is a production of Vision Christian Media. To find out more about us, see vision.org.au.